Let us pray. Father, may my words be your words. May our ears be open to hear. May our hearts be softened to repent. And may our lives be constantly growing in our faith and humbly recognizing when we have forgotten who we are and who you are and choose idols over you. Please give my feeble words more meaning and weight in the listener's ears. In Christ's name, amen. Let me tell you, (laughs) there is no better way to uncover and confront idols in your own life than to lecture on the subject at Women's Bible Study. In addition, our Women to Women Covenant group is working through the book, The Envy of Eve by Melissa Kruger, also dealing with idols in our lives. So I am getting a double dose, which trust me, I definitely need. As we look at Isaiah 46 through 48 this week, um, we continue a discussion about idols. Isaiah is talking about Babylon, this pompous, self-sufficient, excessive city, and the ridiculousness of their idols in comparison to the one true God. Babylon thought they were the bee's knees, to borrow a southern term, the center of the universe and accountable to no one. They would parade Bel, their patron god, and Nebo, his son, who was Bel's scribe, through this incredible city, largest in the world, down the center street, which it's recorded they eventually widened to accommodate the crowds at this annual festival that took place each new year. A festival where they expected Bell to bless them or make declarations of good fortune for the year. And Nebo would record them. Now, while others see all the shine and glimmer of these idols, Isaiah sees the truth, the futility. He holds them up against the one true God, and they are feeble in comparison. But he not only is looking at this festival or Babylon at this time and space, but the world as a whole, even today, choosing worthless idols over the one true God. Now, it's not the first time we've seen the Israelites turn to idols. We saw it shortly after the exodus out of Egypt and God's mighty, miraculous deliverance from slavery. What, what did they do when Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the law? They lost focus while he was gone. They forgot what God said he would do. They panicked and asked Aaron for a God who could go before them. And Aaron made them a golden calf to worship. And isn't this part of the reason they are even in captivity in Babylon? Because they were drawn away from God and worship false gods? It's so, so, so easy to think those Israelites, mm, 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 
poor things. They just keep forgetting who God is and what He's done and what He's promised He's going to do. But Isaiah is also holding a mirror up to us, isn't he? God's Word is reminding us of how easily we can be drawn away, lose focus, and forget all that God has promised He would do. Babylon is no longer a city, but a representation of the hearts of man. An idol in Isaiah's time was usually a physical representation. And while there are religions today who still have physical idols they actively worship, most are much more subtle, more acceptable, able to blend in. Last fall, I attended a conference, and at the close of the weekend, the speaker had us craft something that represented an idol in our lives and share what it was with the other ladies at the table. One of the women at the table crafted a cell phone and talked about how she had been convicted of how much of an idol her phone had become, distracting her from her family and the Lord and giving her immediate gratification. While I wasn't judging her, I did, however, think, wow, hmm, my phone is not really that big of a deal to me. I, I think I could probably live without it. I, on the other hand, crafted a representation of shelter, saying my idol is the desire for security above all. After the conference, I drove two and a half hours south to visit family. When I was in the guest house that night, I plugged my phone into the charger and my screen went black. I didn't know what happened. Despite several attempts, I couldn't get it to come back on. It was too late to go back to the main house to see if anyone knew how to fix it. Plus, it was pitch black outside, and I had depended on my phone's flashlight to get down there. Without that, I would not be able to see where I was stepping, or worse, what I might be stepping on. I have to admit that my heart sped up a bit. First of all, I was thinking, I'm out here in this tiny home by myself in the pitch black with no phone, no way to call the main house for help if something happens. And then my mind skipped to two days later. What about when I have to drive back to Fort Worth? If I can't get my phone back on... I'm going to have to drive on all these country roads for two and a half hours without a phone. Ouch. So, not so much of an idol, huh? Mm, I could probably live without it, right? I had to smile at how quickly my heart had been exposed. Before cell phones... And yes, there was a time before cell phones for those of you who don't remember life without them. I would drive eight hours to and from Mississippi by myself. And you know what I did? I prayed a lot. 
and trusted God for protection. And others prayed for me and trusted God for my protection. There was no choice then but to pray. Now, given the choice, obviously I find a lot of security in my phone. It's my first reach. Now, is a phone in and of itself evil or an idol? No. And most things that become idols aren't at their root. But so often the things we reach for first, if not God, are representative of a deeper pattern of idolatry. If we consistently reach for the remote when we're stressed, instead of going to our Father and His Word, then maybe it has become an idol, representing the real pattern of complacency, laziness, or denial. It's possible to turn anything into an idol. As Calvin says, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Even religious activities of attending church, leading Bible study, or lecturing can become idols when we love the activity more than God himself. If we pay close attention, we all have barometers to know when we've taken our focus off of God. My big one is fear. When my conversation starts being peppered with more talk about the things I fear than the one I have faith in, it's a major sign that things are amiss. And my focus has shifted from the creator to the created. What is your barometer? Is it inappropriate anger, impatience, sadness? What makes you take pause and ask yourself, what am I worshiping right now that I'm having this response to life? Our response tends to uncover basic human desires and needs which we try to satisfy outside of God. Julian Hardman explains the following. Deep idols are like comfort, security, power, approval, and control. We all have drives of different kinds towards which become idolatrous when we must have them at all cost and we must have them outside of God. To have security at all cost is an idol if you are not trusting God to provide it. St. Augustine talks a lot about disordered loves, disproportionate amount of love for things. We can love anything apart from God excessively in life if we love God less than we should. In order to love God as we should, we need to know Him, spend time with Him, remember what He has told us about Himself. How can we not worship a God that says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, 
I have refined you. We can't turn away from an idol and hope to have a heart change without turning to God. He knows his people intimately and has known they were going to continue to forget him. But he continues to chase after them, to redeem them, to restore them, to split a stone in the desert for them to have gushing water. He will not let go. I told this story recently in the board meeting as part of the devotional, so I apologize to those of you who have to hear it again. But when I was about nine years old, my family unit changed dramatically. My two sisters, who are a bit older than I am, both moved out of the house within two months. One married and one went to college. All of a sudden, I went from the youngest of three to basically an only child. On top of that, during one week, my parents, who rarely traveled, had to be out of town. My dad on a business trip and my mom to care for an ailing parent several states away. Consequently, I had to stay with my grandparents, who lived across the road from my parents, And I remember my dad explaining that he'd be back on Thursday and how the week would fly by and to try to have fun. But the week didn't fly by. My grandparents were lovely people, but not my parents, not my home, not the same foods, not the same routines. I was in a foreign land. Every day as I was waiting for the school bus, I would see my house across the road, and I longed to go home. Every day when I got off the bus, I would look over at my home and beg my grandmother to let me go there for just a little while. Since my parents had built their dream house just two years before, My grandmother was so afraid something was going to happen to it on her watch that she stood firm in denying me a visit home. So every day, I looked out the window and every day longed for that house. The day came for my dad to come home and I could hardly sleep. I was so excited that I would finally get to go home. It was a school night, so I had to go to bed early, and my grandmother even said, Now your dad may not come get you tonight, since he knows you'll already be in bed. I was lying awake, trying not to be disappointed at the prospect of him not taking me home that night. Then I heard it. I heard the opening of the door. Then I heard the sound of his heavy footsteps coming down the hall. And finally, I saw his silhouette in the bedroom doorway. He leaned down and scooped me up in his arms and said, Come on, baby, let's go home. At that instant, when I snuggled into my dad's chest, 
and my head was nestled into the crook of his neck, I realized that none of my desires about that week had anything to do with the house across the street. He could have taken me anywhere and I would have been fine. It had everything to do with being in the arms of my father. Take heart, ladies. This passage reminds us when you cannot see for the dark, when you can't remember what you've been told, when you are panicking and tempted to grab the first thing you can for security, wait. Trust. Know that He is God. He is faithful. He is just and full of grace and mercy. He has a purpose and holds time in His hands. The beginning and the end and all the parts in between. Using all of creation, even pagan rulers, to accomplish His will. And He will return for you. He is what you want. Your story is His story. God wants us to know Him, the truth, and be in relationship with Him, and trust Him, and obey Him. In that relationship, we will, although imperfectly, put to death our flesh and idols of the heart. Let us hold to the Creator, not the created. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, Nothing teaches us more about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. Amen.